0: Every year across the globe, nearly a fifth of the world's population fast in the holy month of Ramadan. Here in Britain, millions of Muslims go without food or drink for up to 19 hours during the hot summer days. The lengthy daylight hours can be a strong test to their resilience, to their patience and to their faith. I'm Ramona Ali and you're listening to Things Unseen the programme for people who think there is more to life than meets the eye. In this special Ramadan series, we'll be getting up close and personal with some of the UK's most influential British Muslims to ask what the month of Ramadan means to them and explore how they balance the challenges of faith and fasting with their busy lives. My guest today has held multiple roles as a lawyer, a businesswoman and campaigner, but is best known for being the first ever Muslim woman to serve in the British Cabinet. Described as Britain's most powerful Muslim woman in a poll published by the Times newspaper, I welcome Baroness Saida Varsi. Baroness Varsi, a warm Ramadan Mubarak to you. Yeah, Mubarak and to you as well. It's been quite a decade for you since you took to the steps of Downing Street dressed in traditional Pakistani dress, the Shalwar Kameez. How do you feel looking back on yourself now?
1: I just think it's a huge privilege to serve in government. And, you know, when I was born in 1971 in a small town in West Yorkshire, never in my wildest dreams did I think that one day I would end up at the cabinet table. So I think for me, those early moments were really humbling, moving, actually quite emotional. I remember thinking that it would bring tears to my eyes, especially when I spoke to my father immediately after being given the cabinet uh, position. But politics is brutal and I don't think you enjoy it so much when you're actually in the front line. It's when you're away from the front line, as I am now, you look back on it and seem to focus on the good bits and not so much on the bad bits. In your book, The Enemy
0: Within, A Tale of Muslim Britain, you talk about the complexity of having multiple identities. Can you tell us some more about those from your personal perspective?
1: I think that too often, certainly with British Muslims, we seem to define them as some sort of a monolithic blog, uh, as a homogenised community, which they so aren't, which we so aren't. They're black and white and Persian and Asian and male and female and young and old and straight and gay. And I talk through all the different manifestations, theologically, origins, language. And I try and paint the picture of the diverse community that British Muslims are. And certainly for me, in terms of my multiple identities, I'm British, I'm Muslim, I'm Pakistani origin. My Yorkshire identity is probably the all-encompassing one. I'm a woman, I'm a conservative, I'm from a working class background. I don't think people divide out those identities. They very much become a part of your everyday life. And sometimes one identity is stronger than the other, but it doesn't mean that the others have gone away. Yeah. Would you say as a female Asian Muslim, your experience has a triple outsider effect? Or it has a triple advantage. Mm -hmm. Uh, I always say that you can either say that these uh, issues can hold you back, which they often do. And in fact, we have a select committee report which has shown that if you are Muslim and female and from a black and minority ethnic background, you are hit with a triple whammy of discrimination. But I also think that it's better to turn this into a positive and say, I bring everything to the table that everybody else does, plus a bit more. There's a theory that good leadership comes from having an insider and outsider perspective. Would you agree with that? I spend time in that book talking about them, the Muslims, and then we, the Muslims, and then I talk about them, the government, and then we, the government, because this false premise of us and them is false, and people like me and so many others prove that. We are us and we are them. And I think those people are much stronger policymakers because they are not ideologically driven to satisfy one particular position. They're actually looking at ways in which to make policy where we can have win-win solutions. And who has those false ideas? There's a whole section in which I talk about the paranoid state where government judges who are the good Muslims and who are the bad Muslims and I think sadly, certainly over the last decade or so, starting with the last Labour government, continuing through the coalition years and then into the Conservative years, there has been government policy making, both around the issue of integration, counterterrorism, engagement with British Muslim communities, the PREVENT programme, which has had not a full rounded and nuanced approach to understanding the communities that make up British Muslim communities. Do you think that the state is paranoid? I call it the paranoid state. And I talk about the way in which policymaking was done, the way in which decisions were made, how we stepped away from what I saw as absolute, the rules of natural justice, the rule of law, which we often cite as a British value. I ask two questions. And the questions are these. Do we say what we believe? And do we do what we say? Now we have examples like President Trump who kind of defy those questions almost on a daily basis and, you know, prove it time and time again. But unfortunately, politicians get a bad name because we have politicians like that, where the public start to question whether we're actually saying what we believe and then see us doing things which are different to what we're saying. So I think it's two really simple questions which we should be putting to all politicians and I put them to myself. You've spent many Ramadan serving in the cabinet. Can you share any particular moments that have been most memorable? There have been conferences that I've been at which have gone late where I have had to sit through dinner or not have dinner and then try and eat dinner when I'm sitting through somebody else's speech. (laughs) Government is very, very intense. I mean, the average week is about 85 hours. And in Ramadan, I think, like most people, it's not the lack of food that you always suffer from, it's the lack of sleep. And I think sometimes it it became incredibly difficult to be able to balance that uh, work life. So you did spend Eid, the religious festival marking the end of Ramadan,
0: with your family and You were not going to compromise on that.
1: No, absolutely. Just like I wouldn't expect anybody to compromise on not spending Christmas with their family or any other religious festival with their family. You know, if we believe in freedom of religion and belief, then that includes the ability to practice that religion or belief.
0: So do you consider it's easier for you as a Muslim politician in Britain than for your European Muslim counterparts?
1: Absolutely. In fact, I speak to many parliamentarians in Europe who consistently say it's much easier to be Muslim and British and a parliamentarian in Britain than it is anywhere else. But that doesn't mean we've got it right. You know, for me, I don't think it's enough to say, well, we're better than X. The question we have to ask ourselves is, can we be better? And I believe we can. And
0: what about Brexit? What impact do you think that has on British Muslims
1: and wider society? I actually did believe and still do believe that Britain can carve its way in the world outside of its membership of the European Union. But the concern that I had about the Brexit campaign was the undertone to it. And it's why, even as somebody who believes in Brexit, I voted remain. You can't justify a campaign on the basis that the end is what is needed. You know, the means doesn't justify the end for me in these circumstances where you run a toxic and divisive campaign and you effectively greenlight the kind of bigotry that we hadn't seen for a number of years, where we see a result in actual hate crime on our streets, then we have to question whether that is the kind of campaign that politicians are allowed to get away with.
0: But yet looking at the ban on religious symbols, in particular
1: the Muslim headscarf, the hijab in Europe, is Brexit the way forward? Well, that was one of the arguments that was put, that if you look at the attitudes of many European nations towards its Muslims. It is far worse than Britain and being a Muslim in Britain and therefore has Britain anything to gain or have British Muslims anything to gain from being part of a wider Europe which certainly appeared to be heading in the wrong direction and it's not just the headscarves but it was the election in Austria or the election potentially of Gert Wilders or Marine Le Pen, you know, if these individuals and these parties had been elected then is that the kind of European Union we needed to be a part of? Britain shouldn't compare its relations With its her Muslims in the way that say France or Germany treat their Muslims. What we have to say is in accordance with the great British tradition of tolerance and acceptance, can we be better? And I fundamentally believe we can. I grew up in an era where racism was very much part of what you experienced on a day-to-day basis. But overt racism is one thing. What I worry about now is what we're seeing is not so much the overt racism. It's when the respectable try and rationalise racism that we need to worry. And I see too much of that going on, both in political circles, but also in, in the kind of commentary At
0: And what would you say is the biggest challenge facing British Muslims today?
1: I think there are a number of challenges, both internal and external. I mean, it's why in the book one of the chapters is uh, dedicated to an open conversation that I have with my dear co-religionists. And I say to them that we, you Muslims, three million of us, we're not terrorists, but are we fit for purpose for Britain 2017? And I think there are so many internal challenges which are holding back British Muslim communities, our attitudes towards Women, gender issues, misogyny, future in terms of marriages, the practice of polygamy, concerns over underachievement, sectarianism. These are not counterterrorism issues. These are questions about whether or not the community is the best that it could possibly be and what are things that are holding them back. And then, of course, there are external issues around uh, counterterrorism policy, the way in which uh, British Muslims are portrayed and treated in the media. Uh, issues around discrimination, which are very real, hate crime. And so I think all of these are, are challenges. I don't think there's a single issue which, if we resolved, would resolve matters.
0: You have critics both in the Muslim communities and within wider society.
1: How do you respond to them? I have huge support in both spaces, so I would therefore expect to have critics in both spaces as well. But ultimately, I think, you know, as I said at the time, I resigned from government over the issue of Gaza. Long after politics has come and gone, I have to be able to look in the mirror and live with myself. I think it's important because it's criticism that makes you consistently evaluate and reevaluate who you are and what you're doing. And how does your faith help you to navigate those pressures? When I was at the top of my game and here I was, the first British Muslim cabinet minister, it was faith that tempered me to say, well, hold on a minute, you know, exactly who are you and it allows you to self-evaluate and self-criticise. My faith is a source of strength for me. It's not a stick with which to beat you, you know, it's a way in which I temper myself, not a way in which I judge you. In this crazy heady world and especially in the world of politics where so often we start to believe our own publicity and start to think that we are somehow the answer to everybody's problems, I think faith is a good way of rebalancing You mention in your book that we need to go
0: through pain in order to grow. Is this what the Muslim communities in Britain are currently
1: going through? Over the last two decades, for me, one of the most challenging parts of British Muslim communities has been this mentality of business as usual, um, not appreciating the seriousness of the situation sometimes that British Muslim communities face, the expectation of what they have to do to raise their game, to play their part... And therefore, I think this pain, although, you know, has been painful and still is, I think it's a necessary part of what will eventually result in a much more dynamic, much more engaged, much more successful British Muslim community. And I already see that happening. I see voluntary organisations, charities, young activists, businesses, people prepared to come together to make a difference. So, yeah, I think some good will come of this. You also say that the enemy within can take different
0: forms. Is anti-Muslim sentiment simply one of these forms?
1: I was called the enemy at the table. And I always feel that the best way of dealing with an insult, which is that hurtful, and it was, because what that insult said to me was that you may be a member of the cabinet, but we don't trust you and you don't belong. When I started writing about this concept of the enemy within, what I said was that this is not the first time that Britain has found amongst it people whom it considers the enemy within. I mean, we thought the Catholics were the enemy within. We thought they were loyal to a papacy overseas and they couldn't reconcile their religion and their citizenship. And we thought the Jewish community were the enemy within. We thought that the LGBT communities were the enemy within. We thought the miners, the socialists, the communists were the enemy within. I mean, the Muslims are just the latest in a whole line of communities who have been identified as the enemy within.
0: Yeah, are Muslims
1: too reactionary? I think that every person deals with it in a very different way. It's the whole debate about when a terrorist attack happens, should we condemn or should we not condemn? Is it ours to condemn? Is it even our problem? Why should we? And this debate goes round and round. And I think each individual has to make their own judgment based upon where they are at any one time. I think as people in the public eye, I consider myself somebody who has to come out and say, this is not a manifestation of the faith that I a whole deer, and three million other people in this country, a whole deer, and billion around the world, a whole deer. But I also think that it's important for us to be very clear to talk not just about those moments of terrorism, but also the root causes of terrorism, something which I think has become more and more difficult to talk about.
0: Is there an onus on Muslim communities to adhere to these British values more than other faith
1: groups? No, I don't think so at all. I think everybody who's a British citizen needs to be trying to live their life in the way that presents them at their best and their communities at their best. And I think, yes, of course, there are challenges, but there are challenges amongst all communities. You know, this issue that somehow British Muslims are uniquely unable to integrate, I think poor people are often uniquely unable to integrate. Integration is very much a middle class pastime. I don't have a problem integrating with other people who send their kids to the same good schools and live in the same nice houses, drive the same nice cars and go skiing in the same resort. You know, we don't have a problem with integration. But if you could be black, white or of any religious background, if you live in an area where you have no choice, but that's the only house you can afford or are given, you have no choice about where your kids go, you have no choice about what opportunities they're given, then integration is not at the top of your priority list. There are a very small number of separate communities in the United Kingdom. Some of them are Muslim, some of them are Jewish, some of them are Christian. So the number of, a small amount of separatist communities is one issue, but to try and present somehow the British Muslim community as uniquely not wanting to integrate and to live according to British values is nonsensical and is proven in many, many polls. And with that in mind, are British values faith values? British values instinctively, historically, were faith values because they were based upon our great Christian tradition. I think British values as we currently define them in government policy is false. It's a reductive list which is um, historically untrue and um, inconsistently applied even today. When Britain says this is who we are and who we've always been, that's not true. Uh, but I don't think any British values are unique to any one faith or indeed even to people of faith. I think you can not be of a faith and still feel that you can ascribe to what it is that Britain wants to be in the coming years. But I go back to this. I think British values is a terrible term. You know, it has to be about what does Britain want to be in the next 5, 10, 20 years. But British values is the only term that
0: we've been given. And so how does that play into Islamic values?
1: You know, we can carry on kind of flogging the same horse or we can basically turn around and say this debate is actually structured wrongly. A very senior member of the Catholic Church once said to me that British values is a stick with which to beat minority communities. There is a sense out there that that is where this is going. My Muslim ideals and my British ideals are exactly the same. What the British values debate should be about is what unites us all as a country. And what unites us all as a country is the vision of what we want this country to be, which is British ideals. And so therefore I think we have to be quite brave in saying the debate should be about not a false list of who we think we are and have always been, but an ambitious vision of who we want to be, and all of us who make up this island nation today, and therefore it is a constant process. And if it is a constant process, why are we defining it within our policy making as a stagnant position? Why not acknowledge that concept of journey and use it as a way of of defining a forward-looking vision of who we are? What I want the future of this country to be and what I want the future of the British Muslim community to be are the same thing, which is why I believe in this forward-looking concept of ideals rather than British values. And how does that affect interfaith relations
0: between all of these different faith communities?
1: I think the the issue that I have in relation to the current challenge of Islamophobia and anti-Muslim sentiment is that I grew up in an era, I mean, I'm showing my age now, but in the 70s and 80s, we were all black because the issue was race and whether you were Asian or black or LGBT or female, actually, we were all black and we felt that we needed to stand on a united platform to fight against what we thought was the bigotry of the moment. I find it quite deeply worrying now when I see people saying, even amongst Asian communities, saying, well, no, it's the Muslims, it's not all Asians. I don't see the same solidarity in fighting anti-Muslim sentiment in the way that I saw the solidarity in fighting racism. Religion has become the new race for so many people. I think interfaith work is an important way of trying to ease those tensions. But so often interfaith work is converted speaking to the converted. People who engage in interfaith work are often people who are open-minded and welcoming in any event. So the part of our role is to make sure how do we take that interfaith work into those communities who aren't converts to the god of diversity and plurality.
0: And how do those
1: ideals lend themselves to the spirit of Ramadan for you? British ideals should be about tolerance, acceptance, non-judgmentalness, about faith being a deeply spiritual part of who you are. Like I said, my religion is a rule book for me, it's not a lecture series for you. I think it's also about looking out for the other, a society which um, cares not just about itself and individuals that care not just about themselves but care about the society around them and the giving of zakat and making sure that the The hungry are fed and the homeless are sheltered is very much part of the Ramadan spirit. Thinking beyond your own needs, self-evaluation. I think all of these are very much part of the kind of Britain I certainly want to see. And Zakat is the tax that you give from your mass wealth. It's a certain percentage
0: that you give to the poor.
1: Yes, Zakat is making a contribution out of your wealth to the most needy in society.
0: And you've set up the Baroness Varsi Foundation to encourage more inclusive communities. Can you give us an example of its
1: impact? Specifically around the issue of faith, one of our big flagship programmes has been a, a debate which we're running across the country in which we're simply asking the question, what do people want from a modern place of worship? All faith communities are involved in them. The church, the synagogues, the temples, there have been people from young faith leaders, women, discussions around the use of IT, architecture, ministry minarets or no minarets, pews or no pews. I mean, it's all been discussed. And I think what we're trying to do through the foundation is provide that space where people can have very honest, very frank and robust conversation. And at the end of it, we're hoping we lead to an architectural competition and the design of a modern place of worship. So is Ramadan a source of strength for you? It is. I always say Ramadan is the month when we're all utterly exhausted and full of huge amount of energy at the same time. I think for me it just feels like an incredibly calm month. It allows me to reevaluate, and it allows you to see the bigger picture. I spend a lot of time reading. I spend a lot of time with family, praying, thinking. I always come out feeling refreshed and detoxified on all levels and I think for me the biggest thing as a politician is I feel as if my soul has been detoxified by the end of Ramadan
0: and what do you feel the future holds for British Muslims?
1: I say in my book it's always the darkest just before it gets light and I take heart from that and um, and we know that because when we get up for Sehri in Ramadan we know that we have to stop eating just before it gets light. I'm optimistic that uh, Despite the challenges we face, Britain is a good place to be a British Muslim. British people, all of us, generally want to get on with our neighbours. We have a vested interest in creating a sense of ease between all people who make up these nations. I'm optimistic that if we all play our part, if uh, British Muslims raise their game, if government policy starts to become more honest and more evidence-based, and if the rest of us are prepared to look beyond the nonsense and the noise, we will find that those who we suspect are enemies could be our friends.
0: Baroness the Varsi, thank you for joining us today. I'm Ramona Ali and you've been listening to a Ramadan edition of Things Unseen, the programme for people who think there's more to life than meets the eye. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC.
1: And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.